Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. Today we have Guy Turner joining us on the show. Guy is a managing partner and the co-founder of Hyde Park Venture Partners, which is an early stage fund based here in Chicago that focuses on pre-seed through Series A investments in the Midwest, Toronto, and Atlanta. Guy has been with HPVP since its inception in 2011, and he has led investments into companies such as Fixer, Market Wagon, Xenopsis, and Upfront Healthcare, to name a few. He blogs about startups and VC at vcwithme.com, which is a resource I can't recommend highly enough. Guy's a living repository of valuable insight into the early stage investment process, and I think listeners are going to take away a number of lessons and learnings from this episode. With all that said, I'm really excited to present my conversation with Guy Turner. Guy Turner, thank you so much for joining us on Chicago Capital. This has been an interview I've been wanting to do for a very long time, and I'm very excited to have you on. Matt, thanks for having me. I'm excited about the conversation. I feel like there's no way the tapestry of Chicago Venture Capital would be complete without Hyde Park Venture Partners or you and Ira. So this is really kind of a special episode to me. And obviously, you guys are both sort of you know synonymous with Chicago Booth. He's obviously teaching a class there. And I have to ask, is there anything we can do to get you to come back and maybe teach a class? And if so, what subject do you think you would teach? You know, I'll be I'll be perfectly honest. I I really like spending my time with entrepreneurs, and um, most of the time that I spent at Booth, and I love the school and and owe so much uh, to my own career or from my own career to Booth. Most of the time I spent with folks at Booth was was more people who wanted to get into venture, and um, you know that's has its place. And of course, we've hired great people out of Booth, and we'll continue to. But uh, yeah, I, I prefer to spend my time with entrepreneurs. So I guess that could lead us a little bit into your background. Um, we'd love to hear your background, you know, your path to venture capital and, and how you really got started at Hyde Park Venture Partners. I think it's a really interesting story, given that, you know, it is pretty intertwined with the Chicago Booth community. But uh, I think listeners would kind of love to hear about your background. Yeah, absolutely, Matt. So I started as uh, as a mechanical engineer practice for about five years. And as, as many engineers decide, they want to learn what the rest of the business does. So I, I was in defense and then I was uh, actually in durables, appliances and um, decided to go to business school. Really had no idea what that even meant. You know, my family, my family is more on the technical side and what, what my parents and grandparents did. And so I didn't have a lot of kind of business lingo or exposure and uh, came to business school pretty much as an open book and really by chance ended up interning for Hyde Park Angels and really enjoyed it. And my now partner, Professor Ira Weiss, I only say professor, I don't call him that, but I only say it because the audience may may know him. He's Professor Weiss. Yeah, he's, he's Professor, Professor Weiss. And so he was running Hyde Park Angels at the time. And I was, uh, I think I was the second year they had associates there. And we really hit it off. And as I was graduating, we decided, hey, let's let's go raise a fund. At the time, there was very little capital in the Midwest. There were probably two or three tiny funds, sub $15 million funds that were focused on the Midwest at the time. There were some larger funds who were based here, but they didn't really focus here. And um, so we 
we took a while to get that done. I went to BCG for a couple of years to pay the bills and, and develop some great relationships there and a really good early exposure to business really while we were raising a fund on the side and kicked it off full-time in 2012. What was that process like for you working a full-time job for Boston Consulting Group, traveling around the country, and then also raising venture capital for the very first time? What what were some of the early challenges? You know, with respect to what was it like to kind of be working two jobs, right? One one at BCG and one starting this fund. And I my answer to that would be most entrepreneurs have it worse. Uh, you know, I was fortunate to have a good paying job. It certainly took a lot of time um, and, and also was quite interesting. And then for starting the fund, my partner had a great track record and and that was really what, what allowed us to raise. So I was, I mean, I worked a lot, but I was in a fortunate position versus most entrepreneurs. I don't really consider a startup venture fund to be the same type of entrepreneurship that the companies we invest in do. Because once you get the capital raised, you sort of have a a very stable business model for uh, at least four or five years, and usually often are able to raise a second fund. Third funds can be a little bit harder. Uh, so it's not quite the same journey. I wouldn't claim I wouldn't claim to to necessarily be an entrepreneur, but it's a little bit like that. And um so that's that's that part, which is, you know, it's a grind early and and can be very rewarding if you stick with it. You know, you spent time as an engineer and as a management consultant. Curious about when you were initially starting out in venture, how did those skills transfer? How did you find the process of in venture, you know, assessing, you know, maybe some more qualitative aspects of entrepreneurs and founders, whereas mechanical engineering is a very quantitative focused field. So I'm just curious about the transferability of mechanical engineering and of consulting into venture. Yeah, I so I think the the transfer from engineering to consulting is a is a fairly easy one. I mean, certainly any of the rigors, quote unquote, of consulting, the mathematical doing math and stuff, the the stuff you do in consulting is a lot easier than what you do in engineering at least in school. So that part, you know, all the analytical skills are very transferable. Problem solving, I think is quite transferable. So I think a lot of engineers make very good consultants, and there are a lot of engineers who become consultants. On the transferability to venture, I think that was hard. I think I'm still figuring it out. You know, engineers and consultants are both analytical and critical. The role that I has had as an engineer was more of an analysis role rather than a design role. So I wasn't really a creator. I was sort of telling creators whether their thing was going to break or not. and. Um, so of course there's a there's a part of that in venture. We we meet with lots of people who are building things and we take them apart and figure out how they work and decide if they're a good idea. And ultimately we, we say no, you know, 95 to 99 percent of the time. And so that is not necessarily inconsistent with what engineers and consultants do. The part that is inconsistent is twofold. The first is in the end, in venture, you have to suspend disbelief and say yes. And then figure out how to help those companies grow. And that's hard. That both dis- uh, suspending disbelief and um, helping them grow. And I would say that the best investors I've seen just have this sixth sense for disp- suspending disbelief at the right times and way ahead of when everyone else would, whether it's based on stage or whether it's based on a new industry that's just forming and no one else sees it. 
I could use I could use all sorts of examples from crypto to you know the 1099 economy, whatever. There's a hundred examples, so I don't I won't name them all. And then you know the other part is that this is a sale. I, I'm I'm in a sales game right now. I mean, I meet with people all day long, pretty much half of the day. I'm I'm meeting with people, if not more, often more. And that's not really what engineers do. That's certainly what you do as a consultant once you're senior, but not when you're junior. And so those people skills, the soft skills, the need to perform extrovertedly was a stretch, I think, for me. And it is for many engineers when they get outside of engineering. Yeah, I think that's definitely something that I've heard professionals in the VC world speak about with an engineering background. I would love to turn the clocks back a little bit to the formation of Hyde Park Venture Partners and how that fund has evolved over time. You know, so we've talked a little bit about how you and Professor Weiss went about fundraising and how it sort of spun out, but just curious about the investment thesis of Hyde Park Venture Partners, what you guys have focused on over the years and, you know, maybe how that's evolved over time from the stage level to geographic wise. Um, just curious about the journey at Hyde Park Venture Partners. Yeah, so a, a lot is the same and but it's I, here's what I would say is a lot is the same, but it's much better informed now. Uh, so when we started, we said the Midwest is underfunded and the ecosystem is split up across, you know, eight or nine cities. If we can get to those companies in those cities early because there's not that much capital, we should have a good choice as to which investments we get involved with. And for the most part, that's what we still do. We're early stage investors, pre-seed through early A. We still cover most of the same geography. We've added a few spots like Toronto. We spent some time in Atlanta as well. But generally speaking, it's the Midwest. And we try to meet companies pretty much right after they're forming, whether they're pre-launch or just post-launch or relatively early revenues. And our sales pitch is really twofold. You know, eventually you can start pointing at hey, we've got some great companies in our portfolio. They will reference us strongly. And we've been able to, to help them bring in as much because of their, well, much more because of their own performance rather than our own, but have seen good partner follow-on investors come in. So you can point to all that stuff. But early on, it's, it's when you're a first-time fund, you're sort of like, people just have to like you and want you to be a partner of theirs. And that's a case I think we've we've made in certain circumstances better than others, and in some cases less well as others. Have you found that over time the focus on the Midwest? I'm especially curious in the wake of COVID. Are you know are more coastal funds now kind of focusing in our backyard, bringing money, bringing more capital and focus into the Midwest? And how do you see that sort of evolving over time? Do you think it's going to become more competitive here to invest in these early, really attractive companies, or is that just great for the ecosystem overall? Well, uh, yes. So it is great for the ecosystem. The more capital, the better. And, and I, I, I'm a true believer in um, expansive venture karma that's not a fixed pie, blah, 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 blah. Now, um, at any point in time, you may be fighting over a crumb. But uh, generally, if there's more crumbs, that's a good thing. So more capital, the better. Capital has become more competitive, certainly than 10 years ago. Series A's are very competitive now. We really pretty much avoid 
early series, or sorry, avoid like a solid series A and eight to $15 million round. That is not our bailiwick. We do early series A, uh, what used to be called post seed, but now has sort of disappeared really is sort of seed. And we, we see pre-seed, seed and early A. And so we do those. There is some more capital competition, certainly. But, you know, the reality is in the coastal funds are participating to a certain extent in those earlier rounds. It tends to be smaller coastal funds who themselves are getting boxed out of the most interesting things on the coast. And that's fine. We love having new folks come here all the time. But the big funds, the name brand ones, they can't really afford to fly to Columbus or Cincinnati or Pittsburgh to write a million or a $3 million check. And so we don't perceive a lot of competition directly with them at the, you know, nominally at the seed stage. And in terms of the seed stage, I'm curious, what type of traction do you guys like to see at your seed stage investments? Is there a certain level of revenue that you need to see or other kind of metrics that you look for? Curious how you guys view seed stage investing. We've actually done a lot of investing pre, pre-launch in uh, some investing at idea stage. So for us, pre-seed and seed investing is basically about the team and the idea. Uh, and if we have a lot of conviction about those, we will, we will make an investment, uh, you know, and sometimes a sizable enough one. Right now, we're under term sheet for, you know, leading a kind of a solid seed round. I think it's a two and a half million dollar round. We'll write a one and a half million dollar check in the, you know, the company is idea stage. And then we will go up to early A. And I would say what we're looking for at early A is more proximity to an inflection point, not necessarily at an inflection point, but close. So some early hints that the economics are working but is there a is there a fixed revenue target? No. I mean, most of the companies we invest, the vast, vast majority have less than a million dollars in revenue. There's been a few exceptions to that for lower margin models. But that's, you know, the the, the space that we play in is typically between zero and five hundred thousand in revenue. You mentioned something, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but a common thing that I've heard is that, at least in Chicago, that idea of targeting investments that are at the idea stage, that are pre-launch, there's not that many funds still that are that will deploy capital into you know those really, truly early stage investments. Would you say that's been your experience and that you guys are one of the few that will invest sort of pre-launch and, and at the various early you know inceptions of the company? Yeah, well, I think I'll, I'll give you two perspectives. So if you're an entrepreneur, if you're, I'm going to say, quote, unquote, an average entrepreneur, which is an entrepreneur who hasn't had a big exit before or who isn't otherwise high profile for some reason, you know, whether they happen to take a great ride at a, a relatively senior role at Sprout Social or Grubhub back in the time or whatever. So they're sort of just like, you know, solid career doing their first thing, maybe young, maybe in their 30s, maybe in maybe older, maybe in their 40s, whatever, maybe even in their 50s. <laughs> if you are that entrepreneur, it is completely fair that they perceive raising capital at the pre-launch stage to be very hard. And yet on, on my side, as, a, as an investor, I look around and I say, there are at least 15 more, uh, 10 more, if not 15 more funds who would write a check at that stage now than there were 10 years ago. 
and both are true. So there's never really enough capital. Now, if you're an experienced entrepreneur pre-launch or at launch, like successful entrepreneur or otherwise high profile along a variety of dimensions, it's not that hard to raise capital. It's just not anymore. It used to be. But if, you know, I, we see people like that getting funded all the time with a, you know, one to $2 million, not even one anymore, one and a half to two and a half million dollar round at a $10 million cap. And I'm curious about, you know, mentioning valuations a little bit. And this is something that Professor Weiss has spoken at length about in our in our class. Obviously, valuations have continued to increase, especially coming out of COVID. Curious as to your thoughts. This is something that, you know, we debate in class all the time. So I'd love to get your perspective. You know, why have valuations risen to the point where they are today? And do you see any sort of signs of that slowing down in the future? Or do you think this is something that we'll continue to see as we as we move out of COVID? Well, so this is not a new trend. Valuations have been going up since the time we started investing. So my first angel deal which exited last year, the round was a million dollars on a one and a half million dollar pre. That's That was, I think, 12, 11 or 12 years ago. Now, that company exited for a little bit under a hundred million dollars and we made a buttload of money because the entry price was so low. The good old days. Yeah. You know, nowadays, if you make an investment a couple of years ago and it sells for 70, you're like, eh, you know, it's like a double or a triple. So valuations have just been going up consistently for the last 10 years. They've certainly taken a jump at the mid to late stages over the last year. That's not hard to, to, to explain why. There's a lot more capital and every layer of the capital stack. Do I think that there's going to be a correction at some point? Well, yeah, of course, because there has to be. I mean, things correct. You know, the mid and late stage financing world is not perfectly associated or tied with the public markets, but it's pretty closely tied just because of the entrance you see coming in and out of the pre-IPO stuff and the fact that people do consider public multiples and there are more and more sort of perfect public comps out there for many business models that are pre-IPO. So you look at all that, you know, when the market corrects, depending on how long it lasts, there's likely to be a correction in mid to late stage. I don't know about early stage. I think you know, we've seen a lot more price increase in Series A than we have in Seed. Seed, I think, for the reasons I described, which is that it's a local game and you know it, there, there are only so many people who are local. Series A has become a national game and there's a lot of capital on the sidelines. It's hard to see those prices coming down much anytime soon. That touches on a blog post that you had back in December. And for listeners, uh, VC with me is, is Guy's blog. It's excellent. I highly recommend it. We'll we'll list it in the show notes. But in December, you talked about you know a post vaccine world, and you you had an interesting quote that I'd love to hear. Uh, you know, maybe an update on. You wrote that most companies limped through 2020 and will have to preserve cash through 2021 as they slowly claw back towards growth. This will be very hard for most, and there may yet be casualties. So, you know, now nearly four and a half months into 2021, how would you say this prediction is held up? And and are we out of the woods yet, in your opinion? Uh, or would you update that piece uh, as we enter the summer? It's a good question. I think there's still so 
my recollection of nine months ago, 12 months ago, was that most companies were trying to get runway through the middle of 2021. And at the time when they did that, most people thought it was going to be worse than it ended up being, which means they may have had a little bit more runway than they actually thought at the time and may have planned for, uh, sort of unintentionally planned for more runway than they thought they were planning. So I don't think we've seen as much fallout as we would expect to, or I would have expected to, um, but time will tell. 2021 will be, you know, it'll be revealing for a lot of people. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely been the overall takeaway from a lot of these conversations that I've had. It's something I wish I could have started the show a year ago and sort of catalog where everybody's sort of mindset was as we went through 2020 and moved into 2021. And I guess that sort of speaks a little bit to something that I'm always curious to hear, you know, VCs opine on. What are some of the trends throughout COVID and, you know, as we're sort of winding down that surprised you the most? And maybe it's on the B2B software angle and maybe it's on, you know, the move, move to remote work. I'm just curious about some of the trends that you saw that personally surprised you the most. You know, I think I think the just rapid acceleration of crypto and not just crypto, but like sort of everything related to it, NFTs, all that kind of stuff was quite surprising. Not that it happened, but the scale. But I think I think it ties back to what we were talking about in valuations, which is that there's so much money right now. I mean, the government has printed money. People were not able to spend as much, so they were looking to invest. And it's just like, I mean, I was joking with some of the other day, it, it, some of the other day, it's just like there's, there's this money coming out of like every crevice. And it's driving prices up, it's driving yield seeking, it's driving risky behavior. And it's funny, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, he's like, hey, <laughs> I mean, this is crazy to me. He's like, hey, check out this NFT that I bought on this NFT marketplace. And I was like, oh, wow, like, how much was that, like, spinning bobblehead? And um, he said, well, it was 5,000 bucks. But I bought it with Ether that I bought way back, you know, a couple, like a year ago or six months ago for 400 bucks. He's like, so it's just funny money and it doesn't really mean anything. And so, you know, I'm like, well, I don't know. Should I take that literally or, or, you know, or is it, is it not literal? Like, is this stuff actually worth, worth anything? Um, and I don't know. I mean, I think crypto definitely has real use cases. And it is a thing and will continue to be a thing. But the sugar rush that uh, we're feeling in the, in the economy and also, also that's spilling out into these sort of alternative finance models and in crypto business models doesn't feel permanent. In fact, I talked to a crypto entrepreneur the other day who's basically like, I'm going to raise money now because this is not going to last long. You know, and they know because people who've been in crypto for years, they've ridden the ups and downs, which is not to say there isn't an up and to the right slope over time. The other surprise uh, and that I've been talking to a lot of people about and, and really surprised about is how tight the labor market is. And it is shocking how hard it is for not for not just our companies, every layer of the economy to hire people right now. 
So we could spend the next 15 minutes talking about like immigration policy. I'll, I'll save everyone my perspective on that. But it's a massive problem. And it shouldn't be all that surprising because the labor market was already extremely tight, extremely tight before COVID hit. And then, you know, basically a whole bunch of people have to stay home with their kids. And so that takes more people out. And so it's funny, I look at the at the jobs market last month and no, no one's really talking about this. And I have no idea if it's true, but it's just a hypothesis. But everyone was disappointed because there were 250,000 new jobs announced instead of like the million that was forecasted. And my concern is that the 250 was not a demand issue. It was a supply issue. It was because there's too much friction in finding people and there are not enough people, not that there aren't jobs for them. I just talked to someone this morning who said she her private equity fund owns um, and operates hotels. She's like, we can't reopen everything because we can't find the people our laundromats, they can't hire hire the people to wash stuff. So massive problem. And I'm thinking a lot about it. Not that I'm going to be able to solve it by thinking about it. First off, I, I completely agree. I think it's it's something that I don't know how closely people have paid attention to, but this labor shortage problem is something that, first off, to me, makes HR tech all the more exciting of a place to try and focus. And it's an area where I had zero experience in. But I think now it's become more and more topical and reducing that friction is a big is become a big problem that I think a lot of at least I've met a lot of interesting entrepreneurs who are trying to focus on a vertical approach. So, so taking different verticals and trying to figure out, you know, whether it be QSR restaurants or other areas of the economy and trying to solve those problems. But I was curious, you mentioned uh, it's driving more money into investing, driving more money into the early stage. Have you found that this influx of capital is also driving faster due diligence for you guys at Hyde Park Venture Partners. Has the time from sort of first call to check reduced over over the last couple of years? And how have you guys dealt with that? Gosh, that's a great question. I mean, I'll I'm probably just gonna answer it anecdotally, which may be frustrating because we I don't have the data on it, at least not in front of me. I would say I would say on average, yes. But it's only for the early Series A. So for seed opportunities, it doesn't, you know, number one, we tend, I wouldn't say we necessarily move faster on uh, seed opportunities, but we tend to probably, there's less diligence to do, number one. It's, It's more based on qualitative factors. And so time pressures are actually less difficult to deal with in any case, but there's just less capital competition. But early Series A stuff goes really fast. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I saw anecdotally as well a uh, email from TechCrunch last night saying there are uh, Series A startups out at YC that are basically sending emails to investors <laughs> and offering them a, a, you know, a check, an allocation barring any sort of due diligence docs, basically sending an email saying, this is the company, this is what we do, here's invested in us. And if you want in, you can be in, but you have to respond to us by Friday and basically wire the money by Friday and don't even bother asking for due diligence documents. Yeah, yeah. I mean, although so, I'll be honest, that stuff's been going on at YC for five years in some form or another. Yeah, I saw that over time, it's basically become, you used to uh, 
you used to socialize that you were a YC batch company and uh, over time it's become, <laughs> I saw a meme, it was great. It's over time. It was, uh, I'm a YC batch company. And then it became, I just applied to YC. And so that's sort of <laughs> what you're socializing. And now it's thinking about applying to YC. That's awesome. I like that. I'm curious. I always like to hear this perspective from VCs. I had Mark Ackler on the show from Math, and he talked about, you know, he loves seeing companies with uh, an unfair advantage in customer acquisition. And that's sort of a big green flag for him. Do you personally, or does Hyde Park have any major green flags that, you know, every company is different and it's all contextual, but maybe across zooming out, you could say, these are major green flags. And when you see them, it really does sort of spark an interest in you to further sort of dig into a company. Yeah, we really have two of them. So the first is that the founder or, or several of the founders have really deep expertise in their industry. And that doesn't necessarily mean like they've been in the industry for 20 years. In fact, you know, that's it's probably much less the case because at that point, they're sort of jaded. That's not always true. But but someone who who probably has been in the industry for at least, you know, four to seven years has tended to be able to sniff out the problem and solution much better than other people. There are, of course, some exceptions in markets that are newer. So today's version of that would be crypto. And, you know, 15 years ago, it was social media, where when you have a new market, it's often sort of the youngest, most in life inexperienced people, but kind of highest risk-taking, most avant-garde people who, who actually have the most experience, which still may not be very much. So that's number one. And then the other one is network effects, uh, which you know is not a secret anymore. But we found that network effects companies are just much more likely to be successful and, and create big outcomes than any other sort of generic characteristic besides founder industry experience. I love that. Are there any uh, great portfolio company examples you could think of that that you think have the potential for great network effects down the road or that have already exhibited since you guys invested the power of network effects? Yeah, I mean, in Chicago, our three best known companies are G2, Four Kites, and ShipBob. All three of those have different versions of network effects. And that's one of several reasons each of them is very successful. And when you guys are doing your due diligence, and you specifically, another recent blog that you had talks about the difference between CAR, C-A-R-R, and A-R-R. I'd love for you to walk us through the distinction between those two numbers and why you think you're seeing more or usage of car as a metric would love to hear your your opinion on on the subject yeah so the the difference is pretty simple contracted revenue is recurring carr is contracted annual recurring revenue which is annualized revenue associated with the contract that has been signed and arr is that the portion of that revenue that has been implemented and is you're actually billing for so if you sign a $120,000 contract today, I now have another $120,000 in CAR, C-A-R-R, but if it's implemented, half implemented next month and I bill $5,000 and the month after I bill $10,000, next month I have $60,000 in ARR next month and then finally I have one hundred and twenty dollars in ARR the following. So why is it being used? I'll give you the like jaded answer. The jaded answer is that it's just a way to inflate multiple, make people feel comfortable about inflating multiples. So as prices go up, 
both entrepreneurs and investors are looking for ways to justify them. And one way to do that is to, you know, do a multiple off of car instead of ARR, because in an enterprise software business, there's usually a pretty good gap between the two. Now, the logical, re like, does it make any sense to do it? I think car has a use as a measure of pipeline performance and implementation team performance. But to me, using it in a multiple is just six of one, half dozen of the other. You're going to look at the ARR too. And I have to imagine uh, Professor Weiss being the official accounting for entrepreneurship uh, professor at U Chicago, he's got it. That's got to uh, grind his gears a bit when he sees uh, when he sees that metric used in a pitch deck. You know, you know, Ira. When I talk about what it takes to be a good VC, Ira is a phenomenal investor, and one of his greatest strengths is the ability to suspend disbelief, which is kind of amazing for an accounting professor. But um, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't get too wrapped up in the axle about things like that as long as the company is performing. That's that's a phrase you've mentioned a few times. And I, I'd love it if you could just expand a bit on that sort of mentality and why it's so necessary to be, uh, you know, a successful venture capitalist. Yeah, I mean, because at some point you just have to hop in, right? You've got to get on board and you have to believe when when there's not much there. There was, there was something that I saw, actually, one of Mark Ackler's partners at Math, Dana Wright, had a really interesting tweet the other day. And she basically said there's a point in an investment where, if the investment is successful, where in a board meeting, your perspective switches from conviction to confidence, which I thought was a really, 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 really good sort of summary on how a company matures both in the real world and also in the eyes of its shareholders, whether they're investors or management team, founders, et cetera. So early on, you have a lot of conviction, and that is the result of suspending disbelief. Uh, and then later on, you have confidence, which is the result of performance and numbers. I love that. That's a, I think that's interesting. I've never heard it put like that, but we'll definitely, uh, we'll definitely have to have Dana on the show. So you should. She can, uh, she can, yeah, absolutely. No, she's a, she's definitely a friend of the program. Can't wait to have her on in the future. You did mention, uh, board meetings. We, we know that you are a official board member on a couple of startup companies and would love to hear your philosophy because everyone does have, I think, a little bit of a nuanced take on what makes a great board member. And I think a lot of people listening to the show and, going through graduate school, hoping to become VCs one day, getting to be a board member is a, you know, is a, is an amazing privilege that hopefully everybody can, you know, is trying to experience someday. So would love to hear your take on what makes a, you know, a healthy board member for a, for a early stage company. Yeah, that's a great question. I guess I'll, from a VC career perspective, let me approach it one way and then I'll go directly to your specific question about companies. I think too much focus and emphasis is put on board seats or observer seats for investors for and for young, you know, young investors who are trying to develop their career. I don't perceive this game to be about collecting like LinkedIn profile additions. In fact, I, my LinkedIn profile, I haven't updated it in a long time. Maybe that's bad. Maybe it's not bad. Maybe it's good. I don't know. Like, I'm not super excited about working with entrepreneurs who are judging me by my LinkedIn profile. 
I'd love to work with entrepreneurs who are judging me by what other entrepreneurs say about me, which is, brings me back to what I'm getting at, which is that what matters in venture is that you have a strong relationship with the entrepreneur and they respect you and you respect them. And you are someone whose opinion and perspective can have moments of impact. They may be infrequent. And so that's, I think, what young investors should prioritize, whether they're directors or observers who really cares. Now, in some, in some companies, board meetings are, in, at their best, board meetings are influential in the direction of the business in a positive way. But I would say in most companies, especially early stage ones, most of the influence that investors and advisors and independent board members bring is one-on-one with the entrepreneur and co-founders. No, I think that's a that's a great perspective too. And I think that it is something that I think a lot of younger people trying to get into VC see as the end all be all of the profession is the idea that you get to be a board member on a really exciting, you know, young startup company and you get to sort of have that strategy formulation input. But I want to say the consensus in the conversations that I've had throughout this podcast is that, you know, a board member is there to be a sounding board and to really only try to impart your opinion if you think something is seriously, seriously off base or off track. And in a lot of other instances, you're there to be a sounding board, to give your perspective, but you're not in the company every single day. You're not there in the weeds. You're not there in the trenches. So just knowing how to walk that fine line is something that I think other VCs on the podcast have also uh, kind of opined that is like an important factor in being a board member. Well, I would would actually sort of dissect what you said a little bit and point something out, which is that in the best of circumstances... A board member's perspective and opinion is not invalid because they're not involved in the day-to-day operations of the company. They're actually more valid because they're not involved in the day-to-day operations of the company, meaning it's an outside view, it's an outside perspective, you know, with, with luck based on experiences across other performing and not performing startups. And that's the value that is brought. I I also think there's another really important angle to the board member discussion, which is that, first of all, every board's different and personalities are different. And the types of personalities that work together and don't work together are proliferate, not just in boards, but in any kind of team. The combinations are important. But my strong preference is to work with board members who are brutally honest, not brutal like mean, but just truly openly honest about what they're seeing and what they're thinking without being emotional. And also while being extremely honest themselves about their own incentives and disclosing those. So, you know, shady behavior meant to like prioritize your own shareholder position is a huge no-no in my view. And I, I so it's not uncommon where I'll say, well, you know, as a shareholder, I would certainly like this or want this, but as a board member, blah, 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 blah. And that's important. You got to do that. I think that's that's such an interesting perspective. I'm happy we dug into this a little bit. I think it's the most extensive 
board member conversation that I've had yet on the podcast. I think people are going to really, really appreciate that. I did want to switch gears with our remaining time left to Chicago specifically. You've been around the ecosystem for you know over a decade. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on how the Chicago startup ecosystem has evolved since you started investing. Um, you know, and I, I would also we can touch on the VC ecosystem uh, as well afterwards, but would just love to hear all your overall thoughts on the startup community here. Yeah, I, I um well, I guess I'll say a couple of things. I don't, I've never lived in Silicon Valley or New York City. I don't know those startup ecosystems. And so I don't really have anything to compare them to. My view is that Chicago has a, has a very solid startup ecosystem. As I mentioned, three of our best companies are based here. You know, they're all near or above billion dollar valuations. So, you know, you can, and, and there's been nice exits here and there's going to be some more coming up. Uh, whether our portfolio or other people's portfolios. And so like all of those things would indicate that it's working. Do I think that Chicago is known as a startup city? Like, you know, Austin is a little bit more for a city that's not San Francisco or not New York. Is it known like Austin is? No. Is it the perfect environment for startup, for building a startup? I don't know. I mean, I'd argue it's it's pretty good. Cost of living is much cheaper than than frankly at this point most other MSAs of any scale. And um, talent is pretty strong. The university concentration here is great. There's a lot of CS grads running around. You know, probably second only to California. So I don't know. The ingredients are there. Could be a little more capital, like we talked about. But there's there's plenty of talent, and it's uh, it's a fine place. We talked about the early stage capital. I'm, I'm curious, though, about the later stage, so Series B and onward. And, and a trend that I feel, and I could be completely wrong on, but a trend that I think I've maybe picked up is that a lot of successful Series A companies here in Chicago, when they go to raise that big Series B round, they do have to kind of leave the ecosystem and find either a New York fund or you know a fund on the coast to get them to that Series B and to get them to Series C. Um, curious as to why you think there are not more Series B and Series C, you know, later stage bigger funds here in Chicago. And if you think that's necessary for the development and the evolution of the ecosystem here, yeah, I actually have a very strong view on this, which is that it's not necessary. Because capital capital at late A and beyond is a national market. And therefore, if someone has to fly to write a check or fly to get a check, so be it. You got to fly to get your customers. Like, what's the problem? Taking late stage capital just because they're down the street, other than the fact that they may be able to take you out to a dinner more often, it's probably not going to move the needle for you. Now, there's some exceptions to that, like, you know, maybe, for example, like we, we just made a platform hire to focus on talent. We, we hired a talent partner. He hasn't started yet, so we won't talk about who it is. But, you know, maybe that large fund has a huge platform team focused on the Midwest, you know, like a drive capital. There's value there. Absolutely. But like, do we need 15 or 20 drive capitals? I'd love 15 or 20 drive capitals to be in the Midwest. But like they're all going to be competing with the coastal funds anyways for those larger deals. So there's not there's not much advantage for them to be here. And the you know, I think Chicago or the Midwest represents like eight to 10 percent of all even less five to eight percent of all startups in the country. So why would they be here? 
I don't know. It doesn't seem hyper logical to me, but we have a handful of larger funds, right? You've got Drive, you've got Jump. Jump's doing a phenomenal job. <coughs> Drive is too. And uh, we may, you know, there's Valor Equity here now that's doing more early stage stuff. So there are funds here, but I don't think that, I don't think that there necessarily needs to be more. Our, look, our good companies no. have not had problems raising coastal capital. And I think too, I it, that intuitively makes sense to me almost because if you're at that Series C stage, Tavala is an example. I mean, you're scaling out of the Midwest anyways, and that's your goal. That's probably one of your expansion plans is to broaden your network, to move out of the Midwest, to reach more of an audience. And maybe another way of saying what you're saying is getting more geographically diverse capital is good for that. It's almost a necessary component in that growth step. Yeah. I mean, you fly to go on vacation. Why not fly to raise money? I like, I don't know. I never understood why it's such a big deal, to be honest. <laughs> it, it'll be interesting to see going forward how, how sort of that later stage capital develops. But as you said, there are great funds already yeah. deploying capital here. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a topic that I, that comes up, but um always love to hear Always love to hear different perspectives on it. With our time remaining, this has been amazing. Any uh, any newsletters or thought leaders that you love to follow? As I mentioned, you blog uh, about venture capital, but anybody whose work that you really love to follow that you think makes you a better VC? I, I mean, there's lots of great folks out there who I'm sure have all been mentioned. I think I, I'm going to go a different tact, which is I think as a VC, you're much better off spending half of that time when you'd be reading some blog about ARR that you've read a thousand times before. I mean, like, that's the thing. Most of the VC stuff out there is not for other VCs. It's for entrepreneurs. And it's not really for entrepreneurs. It's just marketing stuff, right? So and that includes my own uh, blogs. And now, to be fair, I write my own blogs because these ideas get in my head and then I just want to put them on paper. And there's plenty of plenty of bloggers who do that as well. So like, I don't know, like Fred Wilson's blog. Yeah, sure. It's good. One out of 30 is like a really good read. But if I knew which one out of 30 was, I would prefer my partners to send that to me and be like, this one was good. And that's what they do. So I don't read it every morning because most of them are crap. They're just advertising for one of his companies. And that's okay. That's his job. Um, one out of 30 is like life changing in terms of how you think about things. But my partners filter that out for me, which is all to say I think that you're better off as a as an investor in technology, just using that time to try lots of different technology. Try consumer apps, get on B2B sales calls, have people try to sell stuff to you. I mean, we 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 bought a CRM a couple of years ago and recently, you know, recently like bought some software. And I realized, you know, I only I only get a software demo like not, I mean, we get these demos with entrepreneurs like really quick about something we know nothing about. And so, you know, we can be like, oh, well, it looks pretty or it doesn't look pretty or like it looks old or it doesn't look old. But we're not experts on the industry that it's being used in. And so to like get people to try to sell you software that you might use on a B2B basis, you learn a lot more about the state of the tech world. And likewise, you learn a lot more as a consumer, just, you know, consuming software. And, and business models. I think that is something that I will try and take to heart. I think that is uh, definitely a differentiated approach, but I love it. Guy, thank you so much. We really appreciate you coming on. And I appreciate you taking the time. This has been an absolute Cool. Blast. Thanks for having me on, Matt. It was a lot of fun. 
If you are a founder seeking venture capital investment at the pre-seed through Series A stage, check out Manifold Group. We're a venture holding company based in Chicago with offices in Dallas, Los Angeles, and soon Atlantic Canada. We believe early stage private investments represent an excellent investment opportunity, but existing investment models in the space leave much to be desired. Manifold is a new model for growth in the new economy designed to create and capture value at the early stage through synergies across its venture fund, incubation and acceleration studio, and advisory firm. Learn more about Manifold at www.manifold.group. And please tune in for the next Chicago Capital episode.